Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, and welcome to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro, and today's going to be an interesting episode. We're going to talk a little bit about some things that are going on in the world, and then we're going to talk about a couple of homicide cases that I happen to be personally involved with, and some strange things uh, that went on, and a story that's in the news. So all three of them will come together probably in uh, episode uh, at the end of the episode. So first I want to talk about some things going on in the world, the Trump world, our world, America. It seems the, the never-ending saga of anti-Trump people it's amazing. This guy's in the paper every single day. They're still going after him using all the weight and power of the government. They have got to be scared to death of this guy. Otherwise, why would they spend so much energy on him? If he, if he is, if he's washed up, if he's done, no one will ever uh, vote for Trump again. Biden will easily beat him in a second term. Why, why are they going all out, changing the way the whole paradigm of how? political power is used and wielded, and how power of the government is wielded. Weaponizing the, the, the forces of government, the Department of Justice, the FBI, is, is just such a game changer for, all, for every one of us as citizens. I don't know if you feel it, but you start to say, when you believe that the FBI was out there, was the greatest law enforcement agency in the world... And it's there. It's American. It's ours. It's gonna. It's gonna be. When the FBI got involved in something, you said, "Wow, this is serious," and you know it's gonna be done well. The agents are super well trained. They're they're intelligent, excellent. I, I've worked with FBI agents my whole entire career, and I found them to be really quality people. And they still are. They're you know. And I know everybody hates when you say the rank and file are good people. They are. It's not them. We're talking about the political people who run the agency. You know, the agents that are coming out now as whistleblowers are part of the large majority of the really good men and women who serve in the FBI. And they're coming forward saying that they've had enough. This is this is wrong. This is all politicized. But the point being, when I feel that, when I felt that the FBI was was not politicized, that it was a great American uh, organization, I felt it was there for me. It was there for my country. It was there for everybody. It, the FBI was there for, for good. And they would help people. They would they would investigate the really bad things. And they would get these really bad things. You know, the Unabomber and uh, lone terrorists and, and people that are out there trying to, trying to hurt us and our country. But now it feels like they've actually been, um, they, they've slipped away. I don't feel like they're there for us anymore. You know, people say all the time when they, when they say, "Oh, you're you're on America out loud. You better be careful. They'll come after you now." It's amazing uh, that we even have to have a conversation like that. You know, it feels almost like we're living in a gulag state, which is hard to believe that this is America. I mean, I can't tell you how many how many conservative friends of mine are saying. Uh, that they, they're keeping their mouth shut about everything because they're afraid if they come out publicly and say anything, the IRS will come after them, the FBI will come after them, 
they'll find themselves in all kinds of trouble. They they better off just being quiet and uh, and and let the liberal wing of, of our country say what they want and do what they want because if not, they'll come and get you. Think about that. Think about that. This I can imagine that this is how people in the Soviet Union must have felt. You know, you don't speak out. Look what just happened in Russia. You know, I think they said seven of the top uh, oligarchs uh, in Russia have died mysteriously in the past uh, 10 months or something. Well, they're all enemies of Putin. They all spoke out against uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine. And the most recent one was the, the head of Luke Oil, a major oil conglomerate around the world. There's, there's Luke Oil gas stations all over America. And this guy's in the hospital, apparently for a heart attack, and somehow he mysteriously falls out a sixth-floor window. Right? That's like the guy who mysteriously had some crazy poisoning. And some other guy who, uh, his family, he ended up dead is in an apartment. Everybody was dead in the apartment. And no, nobody has any idea who did it. This is kind of what it feels like. Right? I remember everybody making jokes about the Clintons. Oh, the Clintons will wipe you out and they'll kill you and this and that. And that was, people were joking because so many people around the Clintons um, ended up dying mysteriously. Now, maybe there was something to it. Maybe it wasn't. Who knows? It, it, most likely it was not. But when it comes to Russia, we know that they do that all the time. Right? Well, it kind of feels like that now, doesn't it? Do you want to speak up loudly? Do you want to go to a school board meeting where you're going to be targeted and labeled as a domestic terrorist and have the local chapter of your FBI have to open up a case file on you and start looking at you and looking into your social media and looking all about you? And hey, you stood up for Trump. You must think it was a good thing that happened in the Capitol on January 6th. You must be a domestic terrorist. That's, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. I, I, unbelievable. Um, I have had people come at me, uh, people in the press, come at me and start questioning people around me. Do you know Lieutenant Joe said this? Do you know Lieutenant Joe said that? When I think anybody who's listened to this program long enough knows that my goal here is to ask questions, to ask questions so we can, we can think about what's going on and make decisions clearly. I don't take the, the news report side of things. I try to look at facts of things. And sometimes that works out, and sometimes it doesn't for following a news story. Sometimes the news story is correct. Most times it is not. So when we see in the, the media this, this Trump derangement syndrome that they just can't stop, the politicians can't stop, and it has to be because they're just afraid of him. They're afraid if he does get a chance to come back, he could wipe them out. And, and now we see President Biden... You know, the unifier, the great unifier who stood there and said, I'll be the president for everyone. Did I just say that? Did I, hello, anyone? Did I, who am I? Oh, I am. Yes, I am the president. He comes out and says he's going to be the great unifier. And instead of unifying, he starts from day one attacking everyone who didn't vote for him. When does he come out and say, listen, all Americans, we have to get together on this. When does he listen to the voice of the people when they say they don't want some of these things that he's doing? Right? And, and I, heard, I heard a woman yesterday, and, and I wish I could remember. Maybe it was the press spokesman, uh, the Corinne woman. Maybe, maybe it was her. Somebody had asked her a question, one of the, one of the intrepid uh, right-wing reporters who were there. It's probably Steve Ducey. He's the only one that asked real questions. But whoever it was was asking this question was saying, you know, um, how is it that the president 
doesn't uh, doesn't pay attention. To, well, the polls tell us that people want us to do ABC. Well, it's funny because when you talk to Biden, you would say to him, do you realize your polls, you're down in the, in the 30s in approval? I don't pay attention to polls. And then here she is quoting, well, the polls say people want us to do this. Well, I think 60%, they showed a poll the other day, 60% of Americans are against what's going on down at the border. 60%. That's a huge majority. Well, if all these polls matter, why don't they look at that and say, okay, we have to do something different. If 60% of us, which would have to include a lot of Democrat people, right, to make a 60% majority, if they were saying, we're not happy with what's going on on the border, then why doesn't he do something different? See, so none of us really have any control here. It's, who else said something? Um, and I, I'm apologizing for not having the exact names. I've been on a road trip working, and I, I, I'm trying to get my thoughts here together. I don't have all the names, but it had to be a military person, and they were talking about, you know, Americans' right to, uh, to bear arms, to, to fight off a tyrannical government. And that's really the purpose of why we have the Second Amendment. It wasn't to, to, to shoot a deer. Uh, the forefathers wanted the people to be armed so that if there was a tyrannical government like the English, you could throw them off. The people could say, enough. Well, this general comes on and he goes, the American people, you need, you need uh, F-16s to fight the government. You're not fighting the government with, with these guns today. And I'm not advocating anybody fight anybody with guns. What I'm simply saying is that this guy was saying you need, you need F-16s. So in other words, you have no power or control over your government. You know, the whole we the people thing? That seems to be over. Uh, we're in a post-constitutional world, as per the great one, Mark Levin. We're in a post-constitutional world. The government has all the power. You, you know, the you can't fight City Hall thing is now is now raging everywhere. If they decide to come after you, you're done. There's nothing you can do. The people in January 6th that stormed the Capitol, there's lots of evidence that they were let in the building. Why would the police let them in the building? Right? But we haven't seen that investigation. Even so, if they were let in the building, they shouldn't have been there. They were trespassing. They were, they, it was a riot, and it, it should have been stopped. And those who committed riot or who did something inappropriate, trespassing, broke windows, damaged stuff, hit police, whatever, they should be locked up and charged. And then they should have a trial. But there's lots and lots of people that are, are sitting in jail cells for, for months without any contact to, to, uh, to court system. They're, just, they're, they're like in a gulag. And that's what I'm saying. Doesn't it feel kind of like that now? And how long can that go on for? How long can that go on for before people realize this is this is not appropriate and we have to do something different? We have to find a way out of this mess, right? So everybody always says that it's elections. Elections are the way out. And in reality, they are. If we have an upcoming election and we are unhappy with the way things are going, we should vote differently. But we don't. We don't. We don't do it. We're, we're going to see uh, a 50-50 split again, um, no matter what the policies are that are destroying our economy, destroying our country. Uh, we're not going to, we're not going to, people aren't going to change. It's going to be a 50-50 split and it's going to go one way or the other. And people are going to probably uh, vote their entire lives away so that they can kill babies. You know, just like we've seen in some of these races already where uh, the Republican was way ahead and then all of a sudden the, the abortion decision came down and then the Democrat won. 
because people say, no, I have to be able to kill my baby before I, before I can uh, vote for anything else. And that might be single-issue people. There might be lots and lots of them out there. And this whole idea of a red wave that we're going to take our country back, that we're going to do conservative things again, we're going to do what's right, we're going to lower taxes and all, that's a pipe dream. I hope it's real. But I have lost faith in my brother and sister Americans to look at what's in their own best interest and the best interest of their country and their family and say, I, I can't vote for this anymore. I have, to, I have to vote for the other guy, even if it's the orange guy who did the right thing. It, it's really, it's disturbing. I, I saw something, and, and I'm going to get back to, to what I wanted to start with, but I saw uh, this reporter, young female reporter, and she's asking college kids, um, you know, who did you, who are you voting for? And she's like, I'm voting for, for, for Biden again if he runs because he's, he's great. And then the girl says to the reporter, uh, who do you vote for? And she says, I voted for Trump. And she goes, oh, you're a Nazi. You're a fascist. And the reporter says, why, why would you say that? Because you voted for Trump. She says, well, you, you think Trump's a fascist? Trump is a fascist. And she asked her, please cite me some examples of where Trump is a fascist. And the girl says, because he is. And that seems to be people's answer. They, they got this message from the media that Trump is bad, Trump is evil, Trump is a fascist, Trump wants to get rid of the Constitution. In the meantime, those on the left are the ones trampling all over the Constitution. Those are the ones taking away your free speech rights. Those are the ones coming after your Second Amendment rights. Those are the ones now we're seeing with faked up FISA warrants, with uh, political uh, search warrants. We're seeing that they're coming after your Fourth Amendment rights. It seems that we are in a free fall away from liberty. And it's seeming more and more like we don't have much choice here. More than half of our fellow citizens are locked into this, this, this mindset of... Uh, liberalism is great, socialism is great, thinking it's going to be this utopia that it never, ever turns out to be. And I never thought I would see it in America, but you're seeing it, aren't you? Aren't you seeing it? I'm seeing it. You know, the fact that we, we have, we have these, these things going on that we have no control over anymore. You kind of just basically have to ride it out and hope that they don't come for you. Right? So when it comes to Trump derangement syndrome, the fact they're still going after this guy because they're scared to death he's going to run and win and displace them. Because I think the first time he won, I think he was as surprised as everybody else. And then he got there and he, he was not politically savvy. Uh, the people he had around him, some good people, but he should have came in and got rid of all the uh, attorney generals, should have got rid of all the, the uh, DOJ uh, deputy attorney generals, should have got rid of all of them and put in his own people. But instead, he didn't. He left these people in place. And what happens? They're all political. They're left-wing. And they went after him. Right? He should have got rid of them. He should have cleaned house uh, in, in the White House. He should have had um, very strong conservatives in there, not trying to you know, placate the, these people and, and put in this one and that and all these moderate Republicans who are really Democrats. Um, he, he didn't, I think, the second time around, though. I think he would learn his lesson. I don't think Donald Trump is a stupid person, so I think he would learn his lesson the second time around, and we would see a much stronger response. So are they going to try and indict him? Will the Attorney General of the United States, who obviously is playing politics here, I, I've watched it now, and I said, you know, maybe, there, maybe there's something to it. Let me, I always take that tack. 
as an investigator, you have to assume that maybe uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. And the, the smoke in this case was generated by the Department of Justice saying they had to go in there and take those documents because they had information that Trump was going to obstruct, that he was hiding documents, that he was going to sell documents, that all, whatever, all these nonsense that they came up with. That was the smoke. Well, if, if there's any, any viability to our justice system and our Department of Justice, you have to say, okay, they have an investigation, they conducted a search warrant, they must have something. Well, since that time, all we're seeing is obfuscation, denial, delay, excuses. We're not seeing anything. We're, we're finding more and more things that they did totally inappropriately. And we're saying, okay, um, maybe there's nothing to, maybe this is a political attack. And I've said this several times, you know, I was talking to uh, my brother the other day, who's a very nice young man. And he says, well, you know, the, the problem with uh, the Department of Justice raiding Trump and, and faking up these warrants and doing this and doing that is that w when the Republicans take over, they can do the same thing to the Democrats. They can go after Joe Biden, go get Hunter Biden. They can do all this stuff. And I said, they could. The problem is the Republicans do not have the guts to do those kind of things. They wouldn't. They absolutely wouldn't do it. All, even all, all of their, I think, are very, very strong Republicans that are out there talking about when we get power in November, we're going to be doing this investigation and that investigation. We're going to be calling people. And what's probably going to end up happening is like it always happens. They'll get the power and then they'll say, well, you know, we, we can't subpoena this person because there's not a reason for that. We can't go after this because there's not a reason to really do it. And we're going to do we're going to do this next. We're going to get we have to get uh, the presidency and then we can go after this and, the other. and they're going to do nothing again. And that's and that's unfortunate. But that's become the pattern. Our friends on the left, um, they don't care about whether it's legal or not legal, ethical, not ethical. They wield power for their own benefit. They don't care. They do it. The Republicans, they talk a good game, but they don't do it. How many times have they, oh, if we had power, we would, and they don't do anything. They argue amongst themselves. The rhinos push them back, and, uh, and nothing happens. So I hate to sound so, so pessimistic about this because I'm not a pessimistic person. But when I look at this situation, what's going on, I have to say to myself, it's pretty clear um, that we're in a bad spot. Uh, the American people are in a bad spot. When we are not restrained by a piece of paper, the Constitution, for, for most of our, our existence as a country, we have been restrained in doing the wrong thing because of a piece of paper, because of the Constitution. There's, it always come back to, to the Constitution, whether it's constitutional or not, and if it wasn't, you pushed back. Well, that's not happening anymore. Who got in trouble? for the fake Russia collusion thing. Who, who's, who's been indicted for that? Ha, the, we know that Hillary Clinton's campaign paid for that, and she knew all about it. Has she been called to court? Has anyone brought her in front of a congressional committee and said, Hillary, when did you know about the collusion, and what did you do about it? Um, here's you on the news saying this, that, and the other thing. When you knew full well, you created this scandal. Nothing. Not a word. Not a word out of the press. No push by anybody. It's just over. You know, the guy that, that faked up the Pfizer warrant, he was held to account. I think he got uh, a two years probation. He was a sacrificial lamb. They put him out there and, uh, you know, he pled guilty to, well, if he lied to get the warrant, how did they use any of that evidence? 
So let's now look to the the most recent warrant event when they did a a warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Now, I didn't read the documents. They won't let us read the documents, but I can tell you from experience. When you look at a search warrant, if it turns out that there was things in the search warrant that were not true, that would void the search warrant because the judge is making the decision to, to, uh, to approve a search warrant to approve the law enforcement community to violate somebody's Fourth Amendment rights to uh, privacy in their person, their things, and their places. The judge is making that ruling based on what's in that affidavit. And if there's anything in there that lies, that shakes the entire case loose. Now, I'm sure what they're going to say is, well, there may be some uh, mistakes or some uh, exaggerations here and there, but the overall was the truth, and therefore we're going to allow it to stand. No, it shouldn't stand at all. Everything in there has to be 100% the truth, right? Otherwise, they could come up with a warrant to come to your house with some shaky truths. Well, those things, you know, uh, Bob drives a pretty nice car and we don't see his job paying for that. Uh, so we have a feeling that he's uh, he's laundering money or doing something. They get a warrant to come in your house. Well, that's not appropriate. And that's that's part of the slipping away of our democracy and our freedom. And that's what I'm concerned about. So in this particular case with Mar-a-Lago, they went in and they did a search. Um, and, and let me cover something. When they went in there and there's a big talk about, well, they wouldn't let anybody watch while they searched. That's that's not unusual. Law enforcement doesn't, I have a search warrant. You follow me around and watch me search. That's not what they do. If we have a search warrant to go into somebody's house for, for anything, for paperwork, for guns, for drugs, whatever, we go in, we round up everybody in the location we secure them to make sure that nobody has weapons, and then we either sit them down in one room where they stay under guard so that we can do our, our search without worrying about people walking up behind us doing things, or we remove them from the scene, right? So it's not unusual that they didn't let uh, Trump's lawyers follow him around, follow them around and, and, and watch them do the search warrant. That's not unusual. That's how it's normally done. You know, once the police have a search warrant, they secure the location, they remove any impediments to their search, and then they search. What was probably wrong is that that the documents have to be, or the things that you're seeking in a search warrant, you have to specifically ask for. Now, one of the things the courts do not like is overbroad. You'll hear that word all the time. The law was overbroad, and therefore we're going to strike it down. Well, the search warrant is overbroad. If you go in and say, I want every piece of paper in that house, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get a search warrant on that. The judge is going to have to say, well, why do you want every piece of paper? What if there are phone phone records in there? What if there are bills? What if there are personal letters uh, of to a love interest? You don't need those things. They're not criminal. So you have to say, we are looking for any and all tax documents from the year, whatever. Any and all tax documents from 2015 to 2072, which tends to show a uh, violation of the laws. Then you can go find tax documents. You don't just go in and, and vacuum up every single document in the house and then take it back to your place and go through it and see what has value uh, to your case. That's not how it works. Uh, you have a right to privacy in your papers for your person and for your home, right? So if they have a search warrant, which is legal, that's the process we have. It's an appropriate and legal law enforcement tool when investigating crime. But the reality is you have to be specific, Right? And it apparently, it seems like they went in and they just vacuumed up every piece of paper they could find. Now, why would they do that? Well, either one, because it was just convenient. 
they didn't have time to go through them on the scene. Let's look through and see what things are, okay? Um, or they really were just on a witch hunt. They had a search warrant. They wanted to find anything that they could uh, about Trump, about anything. They went through his confidential documents with his lawyers. This is probably one of the biggest violations of his rights. The lawyer-client privilege uh, is is sacrosanct. It is it is one of the bedrocks of our thing. You cannot uh, you cannot listen in when a lawyer is talking to their client, and that's in writing, that's on the phone, and that's in person. You can't do that. That's improper for the government to be listening in on that. Well, they have all his lawyer-client privileged documents, and they've looked at them already. And here's how that works. Uh, here's how that could work. I, I looked at a document that I wasn't supposed to look at. I read it, and I found the names of five people who were involved in something uh, maybe they shouldn't have been. Maybe it, it could appear that they're involved in something they shouldn't be. And now I put that information off to the side. Everything blows over, and now I start an investigation into that other stuff that I saw that I shouldn't have seen. And I say, I was advised by an anonymous source who told me uh, that there was this going on at this location, and I started to investigate, and guess what I found out, right? And that's inappropriate. So how do you walk this back? How you walk this back is that anything that they find in that house, no matter what it is, uh, should be declared uh, fruit of the poisonous tree. They had a problem with the search warrant. They took things they shouldn't, and therefore they violated what they did. Now, that's all up to a court to decide. That's not up to Lieutenant Joe to decide. I'm saying fundamental fairness, though. Everybody has to do things right. We have to do things right as citizens, don't we? If we don't, we get held accountable and we get charged. You could be charged criminally or civilly with things if you don't follow the rules. Well, the government has a bigger burden to follow the rules, and the government is law enforcement. They have an even bigger burden to follow the rules than you and I. Right? And if they did anything wrong, then their case should fall apart. Now, when we say that, we say, oh, so a murderer should get away if the cops made a mistake? That's a hard thing to say, but justice at its heart would have to say, if the police did inappropriate things, then yeah, they ruined their own case. They should have done it right, and they didn't. And we're going to talk about some homicides uh, in the next uh, next part of the show here today. But I wanted to get that out. So the special master, a special master is supposed to be an, a, a, an independent person who will come and look over what the government did and look over the documents and determine what they should have and shouldn't have. And we're seeing the Department of Justice saying, no, 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 we, these are our documents to begin with, so they, there's no right Trump has to any of them. Well, it's not true. He's a former president. He has a right to see those documents. He has an interest in those documents. And they took a lot of his personal documents. So a special master would go through and find out that they took things that they should not have. And therefore, you document any of the information that they took inappropriately. And if anything ever comes up because of that information... It should be removed from any kind of a case, civil or, or criminal. And the Department of Justice is fighting a special master. They don't want somebody coming in and looking over their shoulder at what they did. This is a concern. This is a problem. So all of us as Americans, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, does not make a difference. We have to fight for justice for all of us or there'll be justice for none of us. This is Lieutenant Joe. I'll be back in a minute with more Chasing Justice. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? 
I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. We invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. All right, my friends, welcome back to Chasing Justice. And like I said, I'm an, I'm an optimistic person. I'm not pessimistic. I'm just really disturbed at what I'm seeing going on in our country. I'm sorry that we all have lost family and friends to this Trump derangement syndrome, to this, this battle over whether it's appropriate or not to kill babies. The arguments that come up over this stuff is just, it's enough to make you sick. It's enough to make you sick to think that we all can't find a way to say what's best for our, for our family and then go from there. That justice should be the, the leading thing. That honesty, integrity, and life should be important to everyone. So it's a little disturbing. But i got to tell you, you might find yourself getting a cold one day. You might find yourself not feeling well. And what can you do to help yourself? Well, you got to boost your immune system. That's right. I'm going to tell you again about Healthy Cell. And it's Immune Boost product. I've been taking these things for a long time. I highly recommend them now. Um, I just went through a, I guess the last the last week, I started to feel like I was getting a, a sinus infection. right? And I told you I, have, I get them all the time. And I haven't had them in a long time since I've been taking the product. But I started to feel like, hey, you know, maybe I am getting something here. Well, I take my Immune Boost. I'm taking it every day. I'm taking it every day. Next thing I know, the next day I wake up and... All the symptoms that were starting to develop were gone. 
right? And I can only attribute that to vitamins uh, that I'm taking, and the vitamins I'm taking are healthy cell. So if you're looking for something to help yourself, I'm telling you, um, I believe it works wonderfully. And, uh, you know, I was skeptical in the beginning, but after after so many bouts like this where they start, they start to feel sick coming on, and then it's gone, like in a day. It's, dis it's disappeared. It's like my body beat it back. Like my immune system was all revved up and attacked the, uh, the virus or the germs or whatever was uh, trying to get me and uh, knocked it out. So healthy cell, immune boost, I'm telling you. Give it a try. They, they advertise on the network. You can find them all, all over the place. Um, I highly recommend. All right. So I told you we were going to talk about some homicides and some cases because this is chasing justice. And that's uh, one of the things we do here. We chase justice. We try to understand justice. Well, I have a new book coming out. I write police training manuals and uh, those kind of things. So I have a new book coming out, and it's a brand new way of, of teaching law enforcement uh, techniques and uh, procedures and whatnot. Most law enforcement books that you find out there will say, okay, fingerprinting. Here's what a fingerprint is. This is what you need to look at. This is what you should say. Here's how you lift a fingerprint. And then they go on to, it's, it's very technical. You know, it's, it's a learning technical manual. Um, even my book, The Interview, uh, which you can find on Amazon, The Interview by Lieutenant Joe, teaches you how to conduct a proper, thorough, uh, complete interview whether it's with a criminal suspect, whether it's with a job interview, whatever. It teaches the concepts involved with interviewing another human being and trying to get information from them. So it's, it's, it's a very good book. It's been very well received. Uh, but it was, it was more of a teaching manual. I tell some stories in there because stories often help to illuminate a point. So when I'm teaching a class, I'm teaching anything, uh, one of the things I like to do is bring in real-life stories into the teaching because that helps um, fill out the story, helps to back up the learning point. So if I'm telling you about fingerprinting, I would tell you a story about a time I had a real hard time lifting fingerprints and what I did to get over it so that I could lift the fingerprints and then use them as part of my case, which would be teaching people... Um, teaching officers out there how to look at the situation, even if it's a difficult one, and how to overcome it so that you can find the evidence, get the evidence you need, recover it, whatever. So the new book is going to be about conducting an investigation, you know, how to conduct an investigation. And the, the, the reason that it's a new way of doing it is that what I'm combining is um, storytelling with technical teaching. And now that's the, we don't really see that out there in the world of law enforcement. And this is the way I teach. I run my classes, so I said, why not run a book that way? So what I'm using as a backdrop uh, for the teaching, because it's about conducting uh, complete and thorough and appropriate investigations and all the elements that go into a, a, a criminal investigation. And what I'm using as the backdrop is a brutal double homicide uh, that I investigated uh, going back, uh, you know, in my career when I was active duty, uh, in 2004, there was a family that lived in our community, in our town, where I was a police officer. And the family was made up of actually nice people, very nice people. Uh, but their background was they were connected to organized crime. Um, 
the grandfather of the family uh, is actually listed. When you look, uh, there's places you can go and find, you know, actual members of organized crime families, and they have all the names, the Capos, the, the, the Dons, the soldiers, the people, the made men, the associates. You can actually go find who really is documented by law enforcement, who was in these crime families. Well, the grandfather was a, uh, a made member of the Genovese crime family out of New York. Uh, he was sent to the Jersey Shore in the 50s uh, down here, and, and he ended up uh, handling all the gambling you know, that was, that was his angle. He handled the gambling on the Jersey Shore. Well, he had a son. Um, we'll call him Bob. He had a son named Bob uh, who was an associate. He wasn't a made man. He was an associate. But he handled all the gambling, the physical gambling. He would go around and get all the bets from the players, uh, take the money, and then he would run around and pay everybody off. The winners got their money. Losers didn't get any money. So he did that. Bob... Senior had a son named Bob Jr. And Bob Jr. Uh, was not any part of the organized crime business. He was not allowed to be a part because he was involved with drugs. Uh, he, he got himself hooked up uh, with cocaine, with heroin, um, and he had a serious problem uh, with drugs. And he could no longer um, be a part of, of anything. He, I mean, he never even got started. They wouldn't let him get involved at all. Um, so... Bob Jr. finds this young woman, uh, and they have a relationship. And they're together for a while. Uh, they have a son. They have a seven-year-old little boy, a uh, sweet little kid from what I understand. And uh, because of their drug problem, the family has to intervene. I think civil, uh, social services probably got involved. And the boy was removed from their care, from Bob and his girlfriend, Tina, we'll call her. So Bob and Tina are living in the family house, which is a beautiful home in a beautiful neighborhood. And they're living there with, um, with Bob's 88-year-old grandmother, Louise. All right, so they're living in the house together. And at some point, the drug addiction became so, so life-encumbering that, um, that Tina decided, um, we, better, we better fix ourselves. We better find a way to... Uh, Get out from under these drugs. That's what we need to do. So she found a rehab program, a real rehab program, not one of these 28-day insurance scams, night, nightmare things. This was a real lockdown. You go somewhere, they lock you down for four, five, or six months. I don't remember the length of the time, but it was a very lengthy time. They took your cell phone, no phone calls, no contact with the outside world, just doctors and a program to get you off drugs. So Tina decides she, she wants to do this. She wants Bob to do it. And Bob's reluctant. I'm not locking down. I'm not doing any of that. So she, she went into the program, and she got locked down. Well, in the course of that time, uh, the way the program worked is you did the hard lockdown for, I think, it was, I think it was six months, actually. You do the hard lockdown for six months, and then you would go to a halfway house where you lived at the halfway house and you went out to work. They found a job for you and you went to work every day and you came home to the halfway house. You weren't allowed to go anywhere else, but you could start making phone calls. Right? You could make phone calls from the halfway house. And the whole idea was to get you re reinstituted into society. You had a job now, you've been off drugs, you're clean, get used to a normal life. Then after you're, I think you were, you were in the halfway house, I think for two months, and then they sent you home. Then you went back to your life, right? And you were supposed to be cleared of, of your drug addiction, and now it was up to your willpower and, and all that to stay off of drugs. 
So Tina goes to this um, this rehab and she's locked down and Bob's at home um, doing whatever he's doing. Well, after, I'm thinking it was probably two months, Bob decides, you know, I really, I really better save myself too. You know, save myself for my kid so we can get the child back. Uh, you know, Tina's in there getting better. I should get better so we can have a life, right? So he decides to sign himself in, and he does. Well, over the course of time, what happens is Tina leaves the hard lockdown, and she goes to the um, halfway house. But before that happened, Tina and Bob were both in the hard lockdown together for about a month because of the way the timing worked out. So they were both there together. And while they were there, they met uh, a young man who lived in the area where they lived. He was from a local town near them, and he was also fighting his drug addiction. And the three of them became really good friends. So we'll call that guy Tom. All right, so Tom is in there with them, and they become really good friends, you know, and, and they're all looking forward to a life without drugs. So at some point, um, Tina moves on to the halfway house. Tom is not far behind her. He goes to a halfway house wherever he ended up going. But, um, but Bob, he's, he's still hard locked down. Tina completes her uh, halfway house stuff, and she goes back home to the house, and she's living there. Uh, with the 88-year-old with grandma of her boyfriend um, in the house waiting for Bob to get out of his rehab. So Bob moves along, and he ends up in the, in the halfway house. Now he's going to a job every day back and forth, and then he's allowed to make phone calls. So Bob calls home to talk to Tina. And interesting, every time, or almost every time, he calls home to talk to Tina, who answers the phone or who's at the house? That's right. Their good friend Tom. Tom is answering the phone. Hi, how are you? Let me let me let me get Tina for you and go and, and get the, give her the phone. So of course our friend Bob is sitting in in his halfway house and he's starting to think, what's going on here? How come this Tom is over there? So he starts to accuse uh, Tina in phone calls of having an affair with Tom and and she's saying ridiculous. We're just friends. We're we're trying to stay clean. You know, I'm looking forward to you coming home. Blah blah etc etc. Well, we all know how jealousy works. Uh, you know, especially if you're, you're, you're away and you think something's going on. And it wasn't helping that when he called home, Tom answered the phone. So at some point in there, this jealousy built up in his mind that he decided he was going to sneak home and he was going to catch them in the act. So you're not allowed to leave the rehab without permission other than to go to work. You know, the lockdown, not the lockdown, the, uh, the halfway house rehab. So at some point on June 4th, uh, 2004, Bob leaves the lockdown rehab and gets in his car and drives down from Newark, New Jersey, where he was staying. That's where the halfway house was, Newark, New Jersey. And he drives down the hour to the Jersey Shore. When he gets to the neighborhood where his family house is, he parks his car about three or four doors down from the house, gets out, and walks cautiously over to the house. Now it's dark. Um, it's dark, and, I, and I'll tell you how we know he, what time he got there. Uh, he says he got there at 8 o'clock in the morning. We know that was, that was not true. One of the reasons was when we found his car later in the morning, uh, we found the headlights on. Now, if you know the time frame in New Jersey in early June, the sun is coming up mm, 6 o'clock, 5.45. That's when the sun comes up. Um, you wouldn't have your headlights on if you were driving at that time of day, because he said he left Newark around 7.30 in the morning. Well, the sun's up at 7.30 in the morning. 
you would only have your headlights on either because you made a stupid mistake and turned them on, which most people wouldn't do, or because you were driving in the dark, which would have been before 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. So it made it clear that combined with the fact that he parked the car three or four doors away from the house, he didn't pull right up in front of the house, pull in the driveway and go knock on the door or let himself in, whatever. He clearly parked away so nobody would see him coming. He came in the dark so he could catch people in the act of having an affair, staying together, sleeping together, whatever. That became pretty clear in the investigation. Once he got there, he walked up to the house. He went to the side door. And the side door, uh, if you're looking at the house, it's to the right side of the house. And there's a light bulb. He unscrewed the light bulb. Now, why would you unscrew the light bulb? You're going to visit. You're going to see what's going on, right? It's not what he was doing. He was sneaking in. He wanted to, like I said, catch them in the act. So he lifted up a window that was just next to the porch, and he climbed into the house. Once he got in the house, uh, he was in the kitchen. That's the window. He came through the kitchen window. They had a huge pantry uh, next to the kitchen, and apparently a lot of people in the family were good cooks. They liked to cook. They had a lot of implements for cooking in the pantry, including one of those great big giant square-headed um, meat cleavers that you see like on a cartoon, and these gigantic cutting knives, 12-inch long very sharp cutting blades. Well, he takes a meat cleaver and a cutting knife and he starts heading to the upstairs bedrooms where uh, where his room was, where, where Bob and Tina had a bedroom. Uh, Louise, his grandmother, had a bedroom. There was four bedrooms upstairs or four or five bedrooms. And up the stairs he goes. Now, why is he bringing knives with him? Well, only a couple of reasons. One, he intended to do harm if, if he actually found Tom in bed there with, uh, with uh, Tina, uh, or he was going to use them to intimidate them, to scare them, uh, or whatever. But either way, he brought knives, big, giant killing tools with him up the stairs. The investigation revealed pretty clearly that he thought he would find Tom up there. But as he got there, he hears a TV playing, and he looks in the room, and it's Louise, his grandmother's bedroom. And she's asleep on the bed, and next to her is Tina. So Tina must have been in the room watching TV with Grandma, and they both fell asleep. Well, there was no Tom there. Tom wasn't there. Uh, but Bob wakes up Tina, starts yelling and screaming. Um, she's upset. What is he doing with knives? How come you have knives? What are you doing? And they end up going into their bedroom where they have a, a screaming domestic fight. Very, very loud. And Grandma is listening to this. Well, she, it got so loud, apparently, that she got up out of her bed to go to the door and listen, and she hears them screaming and hollering, and then all of a sudden, the noise stops. There's no more screaming. And she's standing there for a minute, and she opens the bedroom door, and she slides it open, and she sees Tina laying on the ground, uh, Bob kneeling over her, and there's a gigantic knife sticking out of her chest. Well, Grandma says to Bob... Did you kill her? And Bob looks at her and says, yes, I did. And Grandma says, I'm going to call the police. And she turns around and she's a frail elderly woman and she's making her way to the stairs down the hallway. So she goes down the hallway and then she has to go down 13 stairs. There's a landing and then three more stairs into the living room. Well, Grandma starts shuffling down there. She gets down to the landing. Uh, and at that point, Bob comes bounding down the stairs stops her, grabs her, and then slices the blade across her neck, which not only cut her very frail skin of her neck, but it actually cut her head off. And her head dropped to the floor and rolled 
few feet on the living room floor. He let her go, and she dropped half on the landing and half on the floor. Now, very gruesome, very, very gruesome. So at this point, Bob has killed the mother of his child, and he has now killed his grandmother. So I think at this point, our investigation shows he was in a panic. Uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Whether he came there to kill anybody or not, nobody knows for sure. Uh, it seemed he went there to catch his, uh, his girlfriend and this uh, Tom guy uh, in an affair. And then maybe, maybe he would have attacked Tom. We don't, we don't know. He never got that far. What he does next is amazing. He, he runs up the stairs, and, and our investigation shows that because he knows his family was involved in organized crime, that he makes the decision that he's going to stage the crime scene to look like maybe it was a, a mob hit. So he cuts uh, Tina's head off. He cuts her hands and her feet off with the meat cleaver, chops them off. He takes her head and he places it underneath her arm. He puts her hands and feet in a pile. And then he goes down the stairs to grandma. And he takes his grandmother, pulls her off the landing, and he cuts off her hands and her feet. And he puts them in a pile. And our investigation indicated that what he was doing was that he was going to take the heads, hands, and feet of his victims he was going to remove them from the scene and dispose of them somewhere. So it would look like a mob hit, because in his mind, that's what a mob hit would look like, right? They take the head, hands, and feet, uh, so you can't identify anybody. Another thing we found was down in the basement, there was a sump pump. And stuffed into the stump pump area was newspaper, and there was a one-gallon gas can there. So our, our criminal um, investigation uh, led us to believe that he was going to take the head, hands, and feet, then burn the house down, and then get out of there before anybody knew he was even there. And it would look like a mob hit. You know, the, the, oh my gosh, uh, known mob family, uh, murders, feet removed, heads removed, no idea. And the house burned down. That's kind of the idea um, that we think he was going with. Um, so that's where we are to the story. So here he is chopping up Grandma. And it was probably at this point almost 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, what he didn't realize is that while he's in the living room there, right by the front door. The front door is closed, of course, but he's right there chopping up his grandmother, and there's a knock at the door. And he looks out the window, and it's his 86-year-old uncle, Herman, who comes every day to visit Grandma Louise and have bagels and coffee. Um, and here he was at the door, right? So now the killer guy, uh, Bob, doesn't know what to do. He's in a panic. He has a couple choices. I guess he could, uh, you know, bring Uncle Herman into the house and then chop him up and kill him. Or he can come up with some other excuse. So our investigation revealed that at that point he said, you know what, I should, uh, uh, I should go outside and I should call the police myself and tell them I found this. So he, he goes outside and now here's his uncle who sees him and he is covered in blood, bone, and, and muscle tissue from the, the dismembering of the people and his uncle sees him doesn't really connect all that with what something bad happened and it, and bob says hey uncle Harming, do you have a cell phone can i use your phone and he says sure and he hands it to him bob then calls our police station and reports that there are two dead bodies in the house so at that point there was probably a moment where he was trying to decide what do i do do i take my uncle with me do i just get out of here 
but he actually called. Didn't say who he was, but he called and said, there's two dead bodies in this house. And when the dispatcher asked, well, who's this? He said, never mind. There's two dead bodies. Send the cops. Well, we believe at that point he was going to jump in his car and take off. Unfortunately for him, uh, the dispatcher put the call out immediately uh, that there's a report of two dead bodies in this house. Everybody in the police department knew the house because everybody knew the family. Um, and we had an uh, early morning drug unit working. We had under, undercover plainclothes officers in a drug unit because at the time heroin was a morning kind of a drug. Uh, so they were out there looking for morning junkies, buying drugs, selling drugs. And one of the officers was very, very close to the house uh, when the call came in. And he rolls up in the driveway as Bob is walking down the driveway to leave. The officer actually went to high school with Bob. And he looks at him and he, he says, Bob, what happened? What, what happened? And Bob looks at him and says, uh, Frank, I killed the bitch. I killed her. And at that point, um, the officer did the right thing, seeing all the blood and everything on him, placed him in handcuffs and put him in the back seat of the car and announced over the radio that they had a suspect in custody and he's covered in blood and said, it's Bob. Bob is here and he's covered in blood and he's, he's in my car. Well, we show up, we begin our investigation and gruesome, gruesome scene, really tough. But in the interview process, when we're talking to Bob, we had uh, advised him of his Miranda rights. It was on video. And he signed the, the Miranda sheet um, with his name, his initials, uh, BL, Bob, Bob Lange, Bob Lange, Bob Lange, right? He signs it that way. While we're talking to him, he's telling us, I can tell you what happened. I can't tell you why it happened. I can tell you what happened. I can't tell you why it happened. And then he asks if he can go lay down, that he's tired. He says, I'll talk to you some more. I, I don't want a lawyer or anything. I just want to lay down. So we let him lay down. After a while, he wants to come back out. We give him some food to eat, some coffee. We're talking. And he signs his Miranda sheet again. We did a second Miranda sheet on video. And he signs it, you know, BL, 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 BL. Signs Bob Lynch, right? Excellent. And then he tells us basically the same story. I can tell you what happened, but not why. And we say, okay, what happened? And then he hemmed and hawed and fudged. And he says, well, you were in the house. You saw it. You saw it. Yeah, but what did you do in there? I need to go lay down. So we go and lay him down again, let him go to sleep in the cell. While I'm in there, I say to him, you know, at some point, you know, all this back and forth we're doing here, your son is going to want to know why you killed his mother. And he shook his head yes, and he started crying. He asked for a Bible. So we went and we got him a Bible. And we brought him the Bible in, and here's your Bible. Now, there was a psychologist running around the building because the, the scene was so gruesome. They brought in a psychologist in case officers had a problem with it because, believe it or not, officers have hearts, and they saw, saw this terrible scene. So the psychologist says, uh, no, no, you can't give him a Bible. And I said, I know. He'll read the Bible and he'll want to kill himself. That's what people do. They read, they, they ask God for forgiveness, and then they kill themselves. Lots of people do that when they've done something horrible. I said, well, we'll keep an eye on him. So we gave him the Bible, and he's reading the Bible, and he says, I'll let you know when I'm ready to talk to you. Well, about 10 minutes goes by, and he's waving at the camera in the cell, and I go get him. He says, I'm ready to talk to you now. So we come out, and we sit down. This time, we read a Miranda for the third time on camera, and he signs it. He initials it JC, 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 and he signs his name Jesus Christ. And I said, okay, uh, what's this all about? He goes, well, now I can tell you. I told you I couldn't tell you why, and now I'll tell you why. My house, you know. You know the crime my family's involved in. My house is the gates to hell. It's the gateway to hell, my house. And uh, I am Jesus Christ. My grandmother is the devil. And 
my uh, my the mother of my child, my girlfriend, uh, Tina, she was about to receive the power of evil from my grandmother, and I had to vanquish them. And I killed them. I cut their head, hands, and feet off. Okay, how come you cut their head, hands, and feet? So their souls couldn't escape their body, and I had to vanquish them. I'm uh, as Jesus. That was my job. Well, we tried to talk him out of that nonsense, but he stuck with it. He stuck with it so hard that he convinced the prosecution and the defense uh, psychologist that he was crazy and really believed he was Jesus. And the judge ordered him to be sent to a psychiatric hospital until he was cured, and at which time he would be able to go back to his life. It would be five years, ten years, whatever. No prison time, no trial, psychiatric hospital for the insane. Now, we tried to tell him he's not really insane. Long and short of it, he ended up saying things to another person in the hospital indicating he was lying, and they told the security. Security told the police. They had evidence that he was faking, and the judge ordered him to trial. We went to trial, and he showed up as Jesus. He grew out his hair, his beard. He's flipping over tables. Um, he, was, uh, he was forgiving everyone for what they're doing, and in the end, he was convicted of two counts of homicide and sentenced to 60 years in prison. Uh, no chance of parole for 60 years. So it's an interesting story, and I'm using that story as the backdrop for learning. For each part of the story, I tell part of the story, and I say, let's go back and look at what evidence we could find here. And then I tell more of the story. Let's look at what, where we would look for evidence here. How would we do this? How would we prepare for trial and all that kind of thing? So that book will be coming out probably in 2023. But it's an interesting thing because it's a good learning lesson, and it also shows you the depravity of human beings, what they'll do from one to another. So I pray for the souls of uh, Tina and Louise who were lost. And I also pray for Bob the killer, that at some point he realizes the horror he's caused to himself, his family, and to his victims. So that's chasing justice. And in that case, we brought some justice to some victims. This is Lieutenant Joe. I hope you uh, understood the story and got something out of it. And we'll see you next time. Remember, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem.